0: to biota.org chat. I'm Tom Barbellay, and today I have the immense pleasure of a returning guest. John Klein, how are you? Good, Tom. Thanks for having me. Well, it's about 14 months since you last appeared in the podcast. It's been 14 months too long. But in terms of the development with Breve, what has gone on in the past 14 months?
1: Well, unfortunately I have to say that it's been going slower over the past year than I had hoped, and then it had been in the past. But the good news is that I'm gearing up for a new release sometime in the near future which includes some major new features like support for Python among other things. So uh, I think that'll be exciting and uh, people will be glad to see the release of that.
0: What made you pick Python in particular?
1: Well it's one of these things that if I had if I could have gone back and started Breve all over again, I really would have started with a well-established language that the people might be more familiar with as opposed to going off and reinventing the wheel, which I tried to do with the Steve language. I'm pretty happy with the way the language I created came out, but still, people don't want to learn a new language, and Python is really one that's gotten a lot of attention for scripting languages for all sorts of software, so I thought that was a good choice.
0: Do you think it maps well onto simulation?
1: I think it does. The biggest advantage that Python has, in my mind, is it's so easy to integrate with other systems, and there's so much great code written for it that's relevant to simulation already, so code for doing statistics and analysis, code for things like neural networks, sorts of things that you might want to integrate into a virtual world you can do in Python and then bring that via breve into the uh, the virtual world there and use it as a simulation language.
0: We've chatted quite a bit offline with regards to C and Java as an interface language for Brevet. Is that support still going to be there?
1: One of the big changes that has come about in breve by adding Python is actually the fact that now with two front-end languages, with Steve and with Python, it's forced the code to become actually much more modular. You know, in the beginning, when there was just one front-end language, which was this homemade language, everything was sort of mashed together, and, you know, it made the code messier and less modular. In getting Python support in there and having it be sort of a first-class language in the environment, it's forced a modularity there and a clean separation of the language which front end from the simulation back end. So, in that respect, it's actually opened up the doors to other languages and other ways of interfacing with Breve as well, You know, which may not necessarily be languages exactly. It could be uh, graphical front ends, for example. But just the act of adding Python has sort of opened up that possibility. In terms of Java specifically, I actually got pretty far with a Java front end, but ran into some problems which ended up making it pretty hard to use and sort of impractical for inclusion with Brevet as sort of the, you know, first-class language the way Python is, so I decided to abandon that work.
0: Now, in looking at Brevet in the beta which is available for download, the beta, I'm assuming, is going to become the release. Uh, at some point, yes. <laughs> I noticed that there was a lot of traffic through the, the Brevet forums. In terms of user feedback and user input, can you talk about how important that is and what it has accomplished in your own development. The most important kink that I'm trying to work
1: out now and that people have been giving feedback on the forum is sort of the the ease of use and getting everything up and running smoothly. One of the biggest goals that I have in every Breve release is that people should be able to download something, you know, double-click on an application and run a simulation right away, not have to deal with things like setting up environment variables or, you know, class paths or libraries, that sort of thing, which some simulation packages have a lot more overhead just for getting started. So in integrating Python, for example, one of the last challenges I'm sort of getting the kinks out of is just making it so that when people download and run the software, you know, it finds the Python class files and just starts up right away so that you can get right into the simulation and not have to worry about any setup. So in terms of the feedback from people on the forum, that's you know, a lot of what I've been hearing and been trying to work out, people say, well, this system, you know, can't find the Python files, and so the simulations don't run, that sort of thing.
0: Well, you've touched on this a little bit, but can you talk a little bit about the technical difficulties involved in supporting multiple platforms? There are,
1: there are sort of a number of issues that uh, make it difficult for... multiple platforms, and using uh, external programs like Python, which, uh, you know, depend on DLLs or on dynamic libraries, certainly (laughs) makes the situation a lot harder. So at this point, It's just been really going through, you know, uh, an iterative loop of testing and setting up on different platforms and making sure that everything runs right. The core of the the breve code is all completely cross-platform, and so 90% of the time there are no problems, but, you know, occasionally, even though a certain function or a certain library is cross-platform, it behaves slightly differently on another platform, so it requires some special care, and again, Python has been one of those situations where locating the actual Python class, sort of varies between platforms and between Python versions. So I'm just trying to go through each platform and each version and make sure that those behaviors are working as expected.
0: In terms of your platform development, do you prioritize on the user base?
1: That would be an excellent idea, but unfortunately, (laughs) I guess I don't, which is to say that a lot of people, you know, just due to the sheer... Numbers of the way the you know installed user base breaks down. A lot of people want to run on Windows, and I'm I develop most of the time under the Mac, and so it runs under Mac OS X sort of natively in the first time around, and then usually to Linux, and then Windows. Uh, unfortunately, is the sort of hardest platform for me to target to and to test out. So for the time being, no, I'm not able to develop as well for Windows as, as I guess I would
0: like to. It's fascinating, actually, because Noble Ape it's Mac and Windows, and the Linux is the stepchild. It's something that I'm asked occasionally by developers that develop on a single platform. What do you see the benefits in terms of maintaining three versions for different platforms?
1: I personally think that code like this can be written and made cross-platform with relatively little actual overhead for paying attention to what kinds of functions and APIs people are using to make sure that they're available on all platforms. As I said in the previous answer, really polishing and supporting those platforms well might be a bit of a different story, but in general, when, when I'm writing new code, I think it, it pays off to just consider how things will work on different platforms and try to make choices that will be compatible compatible with other platforms down the road. So in, in general, it doesn't necessarily require three different copies of the code base it just requires attention to detail when choosing how to put things together
0: now you've probably heard in previous biota chats and other related online discussion bruce damer for example talk about the potential to hybridize what you're doing with breve and what he's doing with digital space gerald jung recently restarted darwin at home and i think it's an ideal opportunity for him to partner with someone such as yourself in terms of your own personal view what would it take to develop some kind of partnership and possibly hybridize Brevet? That's a good
1: question and it's not knowing the technical details of the other uh, projects that you mentioned, it's hard to say. Certainly, the, the digital space work looks really exciting, and it looks conceptually very similar to Breve and has a lot in common in terms of you know 3D virtual worlds, and I know they're using Python as well, but in terms of the technical details, I couldn't say what the possibilities are for integrating those two. It has occurred to me on other occasions that maybe a project sort of separate from, from Breve or digital spaces itself would be some sort of collaborative, open API for simulated worlds where people with any kind of artificial life simulation could tie into it and get their stuff running on a common platform. So that's uh, that's another possibility.
0: Do you have some vision of what this common platform would look like?
1: Nothing too specific. I mean, one thing that comes to mind is obviously some of the online role-playing games and you know the way they work in a sense what i'm talking about would resemble a multiplayer online game engine but obviously not for games and for humans interacting but for artificial life projects and that sort of thing
0: have you had a chance to peruse the second life code at all
1: i have not i know you were following with great interest trying to get them interested in artificial life projects but i've not looked at that myself
0: i think my own experience looking at the second life client was that it could actually benefit very greatly from looking at something like Brevet or looking at something like Digital Space and I don't know, we looked at a number of things when we were working on the Darwin at Home project which became Biota at Home. For example, SETI at Home has an interface. But the nature of the problem seems to be whether you're modelling something on the scale of a noble ape or something in Framsticks or something even more abstract like Gerald's tensegrities or in your case far more generalist, or potentially generalist stuff from biodes through to walkers through to blocky creatures. It's an interesting problem for artificial life because the commonality in artificial life seems to only come with the term in fundamentals. What's your thinking on that? Well,
1: that's absolutely right, and that's something I've been trying to give some thought to. So, and that's actually a reason why I think that an existing system like the Second Life Engine or like Breve even, you know, probably wouldn't be sufficient because there are so many different ways that an artificial life developer might want to run a simulation in so many different ways they interact with the environment that I think any existing system, you know, including my own, probably hasn't considered all of those possibilities and doesn't have mechanisms for those things built in. So, you know, certainly at the very least it would require sitting down with people who have all sorts of different simulations to see what the need of their simulations are and how they interact with their environment. And I'm sure that the answer is you obviously can't have a virtual world where all these things can sort of interact natively. You know, it doesn't mean anything for a little, you know, game of life to interact with a blocky creature. You know, that wouldn't work. But certainly there could be ways to get many different types of simulations running in a way where their inputs and outputs were somewhat compatible, at least so that, you know, they'd be able to run in sort of common spaces and that we'd be able to have sort of a common way to analyze their output and look at their behavior.
0: Well this segues perfectly into perhaps my only meaningful post on the Grey Thumb blog. That related to the idea of a game artificial life SDK which is probably a subset of what we've been discussing. What is your view with regards to that idea? I think that would be a
1: great start and I think it's definitely relevant to what we're talking about here and in fact, you know, if if we came up with that SDK then the remaining step would just be to put that into a sort of network simulation where people could access it from all over the place. Again, I think the real challenge in that would be coming up with all of the necessary support for a huge variety of artificial life simulations. So again, I think it would be useful to sit down and talk to people with vastly different types of artificial life simulations and interests and if any kind of common ground exists at all.
0: Well, speaking of that group, you have a subset of that group in Boston through Greythumb. When I interviewed you about 14 months ago, Greythumb, in terms of the mass meeting, was just starting. Can you discuss what's occurred over the past year with Greythumb?
1: I think when we spoke last, we had just had, or maybe we're just about to have, our first large-scale meeting. I'm happy to say that we've now just started on our second year of uh, large-scale meetings, and we think the uh, first year really went great. What we are is we're a group of people interested in artificial life and related topics. We meet once a month for free talks in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. We've got a really good collection of people who come and show up, ranging from, you know, academics to hobbyists to people in all sorts of tangential fields. And I think that's actually one of the key features of the group is that we have people from so many different fields and backgrounds that it really contributes a lot, and you know lets people really learn about new things that they wouldn't be exposed to otherwise.
0: So, in terms of the group, and in terms of just the creative energy that comes together in a, a greater meeting, can you characterize the meeting? I know there's a there's a talk, but is there stuff before and stuff after the talk as well?
1: Generally, you know, it's a casual environment in a, in a restaurant in Cambridge, uh, so we have dinner and drinks. Usually, the format is that people come and socialize, and you know have a drink stand around and talk for about half an hour then we usually have a uh, half an hour or so talk with some questions following that and then uh people are free to stick around for as long as they want and uh chat afterwards so we get some people who show up just for the talk and then take off and we also get people who come early and stay late and just you know hang out and talk with people the whole time
0: has there been any collaboration or any discussion of collaboration from gray meetings so far
1: definitely on the individual level you know there's all sorts of meetings with with people going on all the time and I know that people make new acquaintances and get interested in other topics from each other at the meetings. One of our goals for this coming year is to actually sort of formalize this process of collaboration and try to have some projects that we can get the group as a whole involved in and try to get more people collaborating together. So that might take the form of you know, a uh, Saturday sort of hacking session where we all get together and try to work on a single simulation, or, you know, it might take the form of a uh, contest that we have at one of the meetings, that sort of thing.
0: The early history of Greythumb before the mass meetings were that kind of hacking session, weren't they? The Meetings were really more of
1: a as many early meetings are, was really more of a drinking session. It was just a group of about five or six people who were interested in artificial life and we would get together at a bar and just chat. Sometimes we would discuss papers or, you know, specific artificial life projects. We would sometimes include small presentations, but they were always very informal and, you know, usually on the uh, scale of, you know, here's my laptop, take a look at this thing that you know I've been working on so we're very happy now that we've expanded that into this much larger group and we
0: feel that it's been a real success it certainly appears that way from a distance and certainly what I find fascinating with the contemporary artificial life movement is that there seems to be a real kind of swell and I'm not sure whether it's an actual growth of interest or whether it's just improved communication what's your thinking with regards to this
1: well Especially, especially being attached to this gray thumb group, what I've really realized since we've been started with this group is that there are all sorts of areas outside of traditional artificial life that people are interested in that can bring them into the uh, the big uh, artificial life tent, if you will. Clearly, there's biology is a big area that gets people interested in uh, artificial life. So we've had a lot of biologists and people interested in biology who don't necessarily come from the artificial life of simulation. Background, but they see what we're doing and it's relevant to their own work. So, for example, a couple of months ago we had uh, Dr. Barry Trimmer, who is a, a Tufts University professor, who was uh, talking about his work on uh, soft robots and the role that materials play in biological motion. So he didn't come directly from an artificial life background, but he saw the simulations that artificial life people do and found it was relevant to his own work. This most recent meeting we had uh, Jason Kelly, who was a uh, graduate student at MIT in biology, and he was talking about open source biology and his efforts to create free databases of biological pathways which can be used for bioengineering and wet artificial life projects. So there are all sorts of areas that artificial life touches on that people are interested in is bringing people to the meetings, even if it's not artificial life directly.
0: In terms of community outreach, certainly correspondence with Brian in particular, and Adam occasionally on thumb relates to how to get the message of Grey thumb and how to get the message of Biota out to a broader community. Is this something that you consider, and do you have any views with regards to that?
1: Yeah, certainly. So, you know, it's a big challenge for us that we want to basically make people aware of our presence. And as I was talking about before, there are all sorts of areas of people that would definitely be interested in the topic matter that we're talking about. But they may not be familiar with the term artificial life or, you know, with the fact that there's a group or a website that talks about these things. So with the school year starting now here you know we've been talking about making a push to try to get into labs and classrooms get our message into labs and classrooms where we know that there will be people receptive to the types of topics we're
0: talking about. And in terms of doing that, would you do that through flyers? Would you do that through approaching academics? Would you do that through informal presentations? Both
1: flyers and talking to academics those are things we've done in the past that have, that have worked well for us. We're also trying to get announcements into some of the local weekly papers here that list events and that sort of thing. You know, also going to labs and going to schools and putting up flyers and talking to people has really worked for us in the past.
0: In terms of a broader audience, is there any plans to create Grey Thumb chapters elsewhere? That's
1: something we haven't actively discussed, but you know, we would be very receptive to the idea if people wanted to uh, spread the gospel further to talking to us, and we would be uh, very interested in in
0: helping people get set up, I think. In terms of intellectual communities, there are certainly epicenters in the US, the UK and Europe, which would lend themselves to being Grey Thumb chapters. If people are interested, obviously there's the Grey Thumb website, but in terms of your work and Brian's work and Adam's work, how much time does it actually take to put together a, a Grey Thumb-like organisation? I
1: would have to say that you know the, the way the, the meeting started for us was really just a, a casual get-together, just... Uh, you know, some people getting together and having fun and talking about things we were interested in. And the initial growth to the sort of large format meeting went surprisingly smoothly and, you know, shouldn't be an overwhelming amount of work. It was really just a matter of getting a space and a couple of speakers for the first couple of months lined up. And we had an, an amazing response just to putting up flyers and to sending out some announcements to mailing lists for our first couple of meetings, that brought in you know a, a huge number of people for the first couple of meetings, and to our pleasant surprise, a decent number of them have stuck around and become sort of regulars, and so now, without so much continued effort in the promotion area, we have a, sort of a healthy group of people that comes along every month to, uh, to hear the
0: talks probably one of the most controversial people we've had on biota.org and I know he also attended a Graytham meeting and gave a lecture was Brig Kleiss what are your views with regards to artificial life prizes and particularly artificial life prizes that come from organizations that have very specific agendas
1: well the idea of an artificial life prize to get people interested and get people motivated to work on these things that's very attractive but you know obviously the artificial life prize that he was proposing did come with a lot of strings attached and my concern and the concern of many others was that it was set up in a way that would inevitably lead to failure and it would be hard to fulfill. And so it probably was not a practical
0: kind of thing to follow. And I got a similar sense through the Singularity Prize as well, which I think was editorialized on Grey Thumb, or I certainly posted my 2P with regards to it. In terms of these kind of prizes, I know I've said both publicly and privately that I think artificial life developers should approach these organizations and say, well, we'd be really interested in helping you out, if you divided the prize up and allocated it in such a way that it was of actual benefit. And I think the difficulty with a lot of these contests is that they're of no actual benefit to any Artificial Life developer through any part of the process. In terms of getting the message of Artificial Life out to these kind of prize-allocating, publicity-seeking communities, do you think there's any benefit in approaching them at all in such a manner? Or do you think we should just strive to keep it low-key and mainstream in some regard?
1: That. Well, again, it depends on what their motivations are for putting such money up in the first place. And if they really have some agenda that they're trying to prove or uh, disprove something and maybe make a fool out of somebody in the process, you know, they're probably <laughs> probably not going to be open to, uh, to compromise in, in what they're offering. If there were people who were genuinely interested in furthering the pursuit of artificial life, then most certainly. Artificial life is a problematic field in a number of ways because we don't have necessarily the concrete metrics with which to gauge success and failure that you might find in another type of science like uh, getting to the moon or getting into orbit if you can fulfill that. You know, that is a very strict definition so you can give somebody a prize for that. As people have discovered over and over again with artificial life, the definitions of the goals we're trying to achieve are constantly changing and subject to interpretation and debate. So that is going to make it problematic to come up with goals that can be achieved to
0: win prizes and that sort of thing. So in terms of the sustainability and the furthering of artificial life, what are your thoughts with regards to this?
1: Personally, it kind of goes back again to this idea that there are so many other fields that artificial life touches upon where there are more concrete and tangible questions to be answered and that artificial life can be great for guiding insights in those fields. So, you know, in that way, in terms of furthering artificial life will further knowledge and understanding of other fields and I think that's an area that we should focus on.
0: It's about plurality fundamentally.
1: That's not the only thing it's about but that's certainly uh, <laughs> an important way that we can tell and promote our work. I'm actually curious to know it's been about, <laughs> since the last time you checked in with Reve is about as long as it's been for me uh, checking in with Noble Apes. so I'm curious to know how that's been going.
0: It's fascinating as I talk about Gerald de Jung's rebooting of Darwin at Home in some regard. I'm doing something similar to that with Noble 8 Historically, Noble 8 has had two primary masters. Well, three if you count me as being one of them. But there's been a broader user community and Apple since 2003. And since then, Intel has jumped on board in about 2005. So roughly annually, I get a list of requested features from both Apple and Intel. And what's curious about Apple in particular is that they never tell me what new processor or what new toy Noble Ape is going to be used with but I can typically work that out through the specifications that they're asking for. So I was rather hopeful with the last set of specifications that Noble 8 would be run on the iPhone and I don't want to jinx it because it may still happen. But Intel in another extreme, if you think about what the iPhone is in terms of processing, Intel on another extreme is luring me down two quite opposing directions. The first is with regards to completely atomising the simulation and this is something that I think all All artificial life developers should consider perhaps sometime after they've considered developing multi platform implementations. In terms of the fact that just thinking about all the separate parts of Noble Eight being possibly events that are dispersed over networks as opposed to just inter process events. And that has twisted me on the spot with regards to my own thinking of Noble Eight and led to some pretty interesting insight in terms of simulation fundamentals. So that has been a a rewrite in one direction that Intel has requested. And by the same people but in a completely different direction they have also requested an OpenGL implementation. And that's been a long time coming. I've been tinkering with OpenGL and polygonal graphics in parallel to the mobile ape development since probably about 1997. In fact in 1997 I developed bodies for the apes and the fierce felines, predatorial cats that were the other part of the noble ape simulation at the time so I had to dig out those polygonal models and start thinking again about how I was going to represent the noble apes in particular in a polygonal environment but that has led me down another path relating to movement and movement primitives and getting them walking initially and walking over a wide variety of surfaces and also swimming and all the things that noble apes do in the environment. So I had carefully avoided that in terms of the original development of noble ape. And I think it will take me initially down two quite separate paths. On one side, the kind of atomized run over networks, existing visualization method for noble ape. And in parallel to that, a development of polygonalized noble apes with exoskeletons and growth coefficients and fur types and some combination of of what has to date been completely non-polygonal with regards to things like the weather and the landscape and moving that into hopefully a very rich polygonal environment. Now, I have been talking about this in some regard for the past two years, however, actually getting down to the kind of nitty-gritty of getting feet and legs and bodies and breathing chests and these kind of things together is a fascinating process. And the image of the Noble Ape that features in the Noble Ape graphic was an artist's sketch from 97. I don't think the new polygonalized Noble Apes will look really anything like that. So, the three possible directions. On one side, something that goes towards a device like the iPhone, which is pretty well similar to the existing Noble Ape simulation, and another tangent atomization of the simulation to the point where you need to start thinking about very low-level concepts being run in parallel over networks, and then this new graphical representation. So it's a bit like, you know, Noble Lake was a mirror and it's just been thrown against the ground in some regard. And I'm now kind of trying to glue the pieces back together in some kind of broader cohesion. And in a similar time frame, obviously, I'm also doing podcasts as well and exploring, you know, the power of getting out audio to people. And also there's a lot of administrative stuff associated with Biota. So in terms of the whole thing as being an after-hours process, it's all very interesting. But I think it's a very exciting time to be doing anything with Artificial Life. I think certainly what you guys are doing with Greyther um, and all the folk that kind of contribute to Biota. And this goes back to my question to you in some regard. I often wonder whether we're just, whether all these people existed doing their own things independently and by giving them a means to communicate, we're actually kind of creating an, almost a lazing process currently. So that's with regards to Noble Ape and a little bit with regards to Biota as well. It
1: sounds like you've got a lot of uh, exciting work there with respect to, uh, to Noble Ape. And uh, of course also with Biota, you know, I want to thank you and congratulate you for all the work that you've been doing doing there because you know, you've been playing a big role in this process you've been talking about of getting people talking to each other and, you know, having places for people to find other people interested in artificial life and information on those topics.
0: Well, thank you, John. I mean, I think as I editorialize perhaps more frankly in Ape Reality, I think there's a there's a real need currently, and what I see historically is in no way connected with the contemporary movement aside from some cheerleading and some of the evangelism early on. I think what fascinates me really is the kind of next generation of artificial life development that you are very much part of, that I am a part of, that people like Dave Kerr and you know, one, one lists the names Joe was a wonderful chat guest most recently. I mean I think the the kind of people that are coming out now, in fact through the very humble nature of what they've developed and the way they've developed it as you say over 10 plus years seems to create different characters that seem to be very receptive to contemporary biota and obviously grey thumb it's just wonderful it's wonderful to have this kind of communication the ability and the means to put a recording device next to a speaker phone and get this message out to a group of people that are very very receptive to it what's interesting me currently which i've editorialized more in reality is the ability to get popular authors and things like that science fiction authors and popular science authors and writers of diverging interests involved with groups like Gray thumb and get the message out to an even broader audience through bringing in these kind of people. What's your thought with regards to that?
1: You know, I think that, uh, that's an excellent idea. And, you know, I've mentioned it a couple of times, but the fact that artificial life touches on so many other areas, there are so many groups and fields that would really be interested in artificial life work if we just knew how to find them and they just knew how to find us. So, you know, anything we can do to support that, you know, would be, would be more than welcome. You know, getting exposure of artificial life ideas in books or in newspapers or, you know, even online and things like, you know, having a presence of artificial life and games, being able to get people interested in, you know, all of those things would uh, sort of help out the cause.
0: What more would you like to see with the artificial life community?
1: Again, I would just like to see all those tangential fields, getting people interested and getting people talking to each other, you know, in very different fields, getting programmers talking to biologists and getting complex systems people involved and seeing what these people can
0: can do together thank you very much for the opportunity to chat with you this evening
1: great it was great talking to you tom mm.